Hello, party people. Welcome to the So Curious Podcast, presented by the Franklin Institute. We are your hosts. I am the Bull Bay. And I am Kirsten Michelle Sells. Bay and I are so stoked to bring you this season that talks all about the science behind love, sex, and relationships. We have been talking about everything from your brain on love to why we obsess over our favorite television characters to how science and tech are challenging our relationships with each other. And I've learned a lot. And for this episode, we're going to delve into a topic that's been part of human sexuality for millennia. We're talking with Dr. Matej Gola about how porn affects the brain. Mm, porn's been around like forever, right? Yeah, I've read about erotic art in like every ancient culture. Yeah, were there like kinky pictures <laughs> and cave paintings in the mm, olden days? <laughs> probably. Mm. Maybe that says something about who makes art. Mm. And since it's been around so long, let's find out what happens to our brains when we take in pornography. Our guest for today's episode talks all about this. We have here Dr. Mateusz Gola. Can you introduce yourself? What it is you do, the field of study that you work in. Uh, tell us all about you. First of all, thank you for having me here. And uh, my name is Mateusz Gola, and I help people enjoy their life uh, being free from addiction. Uh, I do it through my research as a research professor at Polish Academy of Sciences and University of California, San Diego. Uh, I also help more directly as an entrepreneur and uh, clinical psychologist. And you can find me at drgola.online. And what drew you to study behavioral addiction and compulsive sexual behavior specifically? So when I started my clinical practice, one of my very first patients was seeking treatment uh, because of problematic pornography use. And um, it was in 2008. And, you know, that time there was no knowledge or systematic research on that issue. And very quickly, I have realized that uh, my supervisors were as helpless as I was. And uh, yeah, it was a little bit confusing. Uh, but somehow I was able to help uh, this man and he referred others. And five years later, uh, about one third of my patients um, were uh, with whom I've, I've been working uh, had some problems with either pornography use or some other compulsive sexual behaviors like paid sexual services use or risky sexual service, sexual activities also involving illicit substances. And that was around 2013. Um, and that time I was working half time in clinic, half time at the cognitive neuroscience department where I was studying brains. Uh, and the same year, American Psychiatric Association decided to not include uh, compulsive sexual behaviors uh, in the official classification of disorders uh, due to the insufficient research on this topic. And uh, this event inspired me to start a research lab focused on problematic pornography use and provide all the data uh, necessary to recognize it as a, a real problem. And uh, eight years later, uh, World Health Organization uh, officially recognized that as a new disorder. And uh, yeah, WHO so officially yeah, uh, acknowledges that people may have a problem with compulsive sex. 
Yeah, no, wow. thank you for that. You know, you mentioned it a couple of seconds ago, but I want to ask directly, the person that you encountered in 2008, you were able to help them and change the behavior and, and I guess their brain? Yes, I don't know about the brain of this person, but I assume <laughs> that there was a change in the brain. In our later research, most research, research, we were also providing treatment and checking what changes in the brain after five months of treatment. And we know that this effective um, treatment also changes the brain, uh, restores the normal brain function. Wow. First of all, incredible that you were able to sort of create a safe haven, maybe unintentional, you know, with just starting with one patient, but then able to grow Mm -hmm. in a place where people don't feel like they're the only one, right? Because people can seek addiction services, but if they feel like they're in a super stigmatized special addiction mm-hmm. as opposed to maybe a more common addiction, alcoholism or drugs, it, it might feel uncomfortable to seek help. So I, that's incredible. This is also very important that you mentioned that because uh, there's already a lot of shame and stigmatization around addiction. But when it comes to the addictive behaviors related to sex, we are even more uh, embarrassed to talk about it. And this shame is much, much stronger. Uh, so this feeling that you are not the only weirdo uh, is really helpful to reach out for help. Yeah, and we're covering so much about sex, love, and relationships, but there's been such a through line with all of our guests about how much shame and stigma comes along with sex in the first place, even in healthy levels and addiction. So combining them, I'm sure, is is a really hard conversation for people mm-hmm. to take the step to make. And so I think undeniably pornography has become increasingly prevalent, right? And partially because of just availability on the internet, right? Compared to decades mm-hmm. ago. Have you noticed, are there other factors at work as to why it's become more prevalent in the last few decades? Uh, So internet is one factor, obviously, but another one are mobile devices. So 20 years ago, there was, you know, one desktop computer in the household, usually in the living room. So everyone could see what you are doing, what you are watching. That's a throwback right there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's right. Uh, But then, you know, we got laptops, so we were able to explore internet in our own bedrooms. And uh, now with smartphones, uh, we can do it everywhere at any time. Uh, so this increasing mobility of internet access is actually the main factor. Um, and also the decreasing age of owning your first mobile device. Um, this is also very important and it results with the situation that, uh, you know, like average 10 years old kid can see more naked bodies and see more sexual positions within one hour than all his grandparents ever seen during the whole lifetime. Oh my gosh. And uh, yeah, according to our most uh, recent studies, about 25%, so every fourth kid in the age of seven to 12, and it's the same for boys and girls, watch porn at least once a month. So by the age, uh, you know, they will have their first uh, romantic relationships, uh, their first sexual encounters, they may already acquire a lot of unrealistic expectations about uh, real sex. And uh, yeah, research also shows that uh, too much porn watching increases the anxiety related to sexual initiation. And those first encounters may be more stressful and also decreases satisfaction from the real sexual encounters with with partners. Uh, So yeah, this is, you know, one very big factor, this increasing uh, availability of mobile internet devices and decreasing age of uh, having them. I really appreciate that note on 
behaviors and how it informs mm-hmm. behaviors very, very, very early. You know, one of the things that we've been talking about is consent mm-hmm. and just and having general information. That's been a through line. Um, that's not been a case, unfortunately. I was going to say most people use pornography as entertainment, but some need to seek treatment for problematic uh, pornography use and ex- excessive masturbation. Uh, what constitutes problematic porn use? According to you, yeah. So it's important to stress out that you know around fifty percent of uh, adult males and thirty percent of adult females use porn on a regular basis as an entertainment, and only for some of uh, the people this is a problematic behavior. And thanks to the World Health Organization, starting from January first of this year, twenty twenty two. We have those official uh, guidelines, diagnostic criteria. We can measure where can this. Where we say, yes, we can measure it, exactly. And um, according to WHO, we can say that someone has a compulsive sexual behavior, uh, in this case related to porn use, if uh, this person experiences loss of control over uh, pornography use. And we can measure this loss of control through uh, several aspects, for example, You don't control where do you start watching porn. You don't control for how long do you watch porn. You don't control when do you stop watching. You don't control where do you watch. So you can start watching at work, you know, in the public transportation, wherever. Then the next very important aspect is that this loss of uh, control over pornography watching leads to neglecting significant activities uh, such as your hobbies, education, work, social life. And then it becomes more severe if despite those negative impact on your life, uh, you can you still cannot stop watching porn. So you see the negative impact, but you still cannot stop or limit uh, how much do you watch. And uh, you continue watching despite decreased uh, pleasure from that or even lack of pleasure, because in the severe cases, People don't even experience pleasure while masturbating to porn. They just watch for self-regulation. And there are two important aspects. This pattern needs to last at least six months, so we can recognize it as a disorder. And the second thing, which is also important, is that it's not enough that you just feel bad because of the uh, dissonance, incongruence between your Uh, moral beliefs around sexuality and porn and your behavior. Sometimes people who are very conservative, they believe that porn is always bad, they shouldn't watch at all, but they don't have any other sexual activities. So they watch from time to time, they feel bad, but they don't experience any of those four aspects I just mentioned, uh, which WHO mentioned. So this is important that we really see those things mentioned by WHO. I want to pull back for a second to make sure I understood you correctly. So this is something that I I have never heard before, if this is what you're saying, that there are people using porn, either problematically or not, who watch porn without any intention of masturbation, sex. It is entirely just to watch. Is that accurate? Uh, No. So uh, 99% of cases of pornography watching is uh, accompanied by masturbation. Uh, sometimes like 1% is watching with your spouse, you know, mm. your partner, just to spice up the sexual life. Um, but sooner or later, there's always masturbation. But among those people who develop the problematic pornography use, the m- main driving factor is not just to experience a sexual pleasure, to meet your sexual needs. Usually people watch just as a coping strategy 
to cope with difficult emotion, stress, loneliness, anxiety, and disappointment, so on. And they use it as a distractor. Yeah? So very often they watch multiple times a day because they need more of the distraction. And sometimes they don't want to masturbate quickly with porn because they desire this distraction. They want to escape the reality. So they can stay on the edge of the orgasm and watch, for example, for a few hours before they masturbate, because after masturbation, they need to wait a little bit more for another session to watch. And that's how it looks like. So in this, in the case of very severe problematic users, we are talking about watching, you know, sometimes four, six, eight, 15 even hours a day, very often multiple days in a row, such, you know, that this is a very massive behavior and it disturbs life completely. Wow, yeah, I mean, that 15, 18 hours a day, that's your entire mm -hmm. day. That's, that's a lot. That's yeah. more hours yeah. than I'm usually even awake yeah, for. So, that's yeah. A lot. Um, and so I know your research particularly seeks to understand the neural and the psychological mechanisms that underlie problematic pornography use. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, what is going on in the brain, biologically, whatever it may be, of someone with problematic pornography use? So it's helpful if we think about um, addiction and problematic pornography use as a problem with motivation, yeah? like a motivation disease uh, disorder, let's say like that. Uh, so uh, let's look first at the healthy brain. Uh, when we look into the healthy brain, uh, we can see that this brain is motivated to seek for a variety sources of activities which uh, provides pleasure. And uh, that's how we evolved. And we learn what is predictive for pleasure. So, for example, uh, your friends are telling you that uh, they are going for a weekend trip. And your brain takes it as a cue that there is a potential fun experience. Yeah? And then it motivates you by the release of dopamine to get your work done by the end of the week and do whatever it takes to join them because you expect that there will be fun. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And that's how the motivation works. And if we look at the addicted brain, we can see that over time it becomes super sensitive to cues of only one type of pleasure. So for example, alcohol only uh, or pornography only and it starts neglecting the cues of other sources of fun. Uh, so this increasing sensitivity for only one source of pleasure results with the development of the wide spectrum of different cues associated with this particular substance or this particular behavior, such as, for example, you know, places where you've been drinking becomes your cue, your triggers, um, your the situation when you were drinking or mood states when you were drinking becomes the triggers. And your brain then, when meets this trigger, starts motivating you to do whatever it takes to have a drink or whatever it takes to watch porn. So what we see in the brain, both of alcohol addicts or problematic pornography users, is this hypersensitization for cues associated with their substance of abuse or behavior of abuse like pornography watching and then it evokes this craving that it's hard to stop you know once something triggers you there is a strong release of dopamine and your brain takes uh, tells you to do whatever it takes to get it mm. to watch wow. it I'm so glad we're talking about this because as you know working in addiction it's such a 
it's something people who have little information on the topic often think of as just every day you're waking up and you're making this choice, but there's so much science and biology that goes behind it. So I'm so glad we're having this conversation. Yeah, and I'm stunned in this moment myself just because, you know, I've craved to watch pornographic images and different things like that, mm-hmm. but to be made aware of this spectrum of behavior and the, and, and the depths of the issue, I'm like, whoa, yeah. I've never been stifled in, in that manner. And so in this moment, I'm just like, I have a heart for anyone who's who might be going through that. I want to switch gears just a little bit. Can you tell us about Predict Watch Inc. and why you do the work that you do? Yeah, so that, that's a, a huge switch of the that gears. Was a big switch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This conversation is going to be uh, weird. <laughs> yes, sure, sure. But we have a great pleasure. So Predict Watch is a company I co-founded um, a few years ago. And, um, you know, my main goal was uh, to help people with addictions, not only to understand it. And one of the very big issue is that over 70% of people who are very motivated to quit, they already go for some kind of treatment. They go to rehab facilities. Sometimes they pay a lot of money for that and they spend a lot of time there. And we know from the studies that over 70% of people with substance use disorders and behavioral addictions, they relapse within one year after treatment, after successful treatment. Not mentioning that, you know, a lot of people are not able to complete treatment. So this is very sad because for some of those people, relapses uh, result with death. Uh, So they die because of overdose in case of substances. And they said, you know, sometimes it's very dramatic. So in Predict Watch, the goal was to develop innovative technology allowing to predict relapses. And currently we are able to do it for six different addictions with over 90% of accuracy. 90%? And we can do, wow. Yeah, but the best is that we can do it even five days ahead of relapse. What? So we know about the relapse way before the addicted person knows about it, yeah? And we do it using advanced machine learning approach and uh, data we collect through the smartphones and smartwatches. So currently this technology works and now what we are doing, we are testing a personalized interventions uh, which uh, will allow us not only to predict relapse, but also prevent it before it happens. Uh, so once it's ready, probably approximately around the end of this year, we will be releasing the uh, products to the market. Oh, my God. It's funny because we've been talking a lot about dating apps mm-hmm. with a few people and about algorithms and how interestingly kind of overwhelming it can be to realize that your phone knows so much about you and not always yeah. in a good way. You're blowing my mind Yeah, right many now. of these conversations <laughs> have like opened up what we initially thought of uh, – particular topics like porn or, mm-hmm. or apps and algorithms and yeah. technology and relationships. It has opened it up quite quite a bit. Um, I'm going to move on to the, the next question, which is uh, there's a lot of underage porn consumption. Mm. Um, with modern technology, young people will always have access to it. We just kind of mentioned that. Mm-hmm. How can we guide future generations in their porn consumption in a way that's not limiting, but helps them understand the unrealistic standards and risk of addiction? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for asking that. You know, I think that first of all, we need a good sexual education. So, you know, young people could learn about sexuality in a positive and non-judgmental way and discover their own sexuality without anxiety. And um, 
Moreover, I think we need such an education not only for young people, but also for the generation of their parents. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about this uh, shame around sexuality today. And th this is very important because, you know, our research shows that one of the most significant factors preventing teenagers from development of problematic pornography use Uh, is an ability to have an honest conversation about uh, sexuality with their own parents. Mm -hmm. And this is so simple. But the problem is that currently majority of adult couples can't even talk uh, about their pornography use with each other. You know, mm -hmm. we, can, we can talk about it with our own partners. It's a thing. So, so, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> how we can talk uh, about it with kids, yeah? yeah. Uh, so we need this education for both adults and teenagers. And I also believe that we need some kind of better mechanism of age verification. You know, a lot of countries in uh, Europe right now already implemented uh, policies and currently also implement um, also technical solutions to really verify the age of uh, people who visit porn sites. Uh, the same way as we do it for the online liquor store or, or cannabis stores or, you know, financial services. Mm -hmm. There is already a plenty of safe, fast and completely private and effective uh, solutions, which works. Yeah? Uh, so why won't we use them to also verify the age of uh, people who access the porn sites? You know, probably some teenagers will be able to bypass because, <laughs> you know, teenagers are, are skilled these They're days. Smart. <laughs> They're yeah, smart. They're so but, sharp. But for sure it will work for most of seven or 12-year-old kids and yeah. they would be able to explore internet without this risk of getting into the porn too early and being able to experience their sexuality without this bias of porn. Yeah. Mm. And I think this is important. My last question for you is, What are some questions for you or what is a question that you've come across that in this field is still unanswered and that you hope to research in the future, that you hope to see solved in your time? So currently for me, the, the most fascinating and the biggest question is how to most effectively help those individuals who struggle with either addictions or problematic pornography use how we can personalize this treatment so it's most effective for everyone and um, also you know, tackles the individual issues. And I believe that we can do it with new technologies that they can be extremely helpful, as in PredictWatch, for example. Uh, so I hope that uh, we will be able to provide a good ways of, uh, health, of treatment, uh, good solutions, how to help, but there's still a lot of research on the, on the way. Dr. Gola, thank you for this conversation because before I just thought if you brought porn mags, you had a problem. Yeah, But no. I understand it's like <laughs> much bigger than so, that. <laughs> this is so interesting. Thank you so much for all of this. And thank you for taking the time out of your day to come talk to us. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. And it was a great pleasure to, to thank be you. our guest. You're doing amazing work, seriously. <laughs> you also, you know, it's oh, great that, <laughs> that you are talking about such topics. Yeah, we need it. Man, I always took the conversations around porn and pornography as kind of light and fun and mm -hmm. funny. But that conversation definitely humbled me in a way because I didn't know it could get so dark. I didn't know it could get so serious and affect your behaviors and affect your relationships and, and really cripple you. I'm like, yeah, that's not something I knew. Yeah, that was very shocking to me. I mean, 
I suppose not shocking, but I, I didn't realize how severe that can go because it is an addiction, right? Like alcoholism or drug abuse or anything. It's the wiring in your brain. So that was really awesome to hear about. And I love the work that he's doing. No, it's so important. We all yeah. interact with porn. Like, you know, it's not something that is hard to find. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could find it right now. The kids find it all the time. <laughs> yeah, we actually have to go out of our way to make sure kids don't come across it. That's how hard it is to not see porn. Yeah, it's so accessible. <laughs> yeah. That's our story for today's episode. Next week, we're going to jump into the ultimate commitment marriage. But you might be surprised to learn more about how humans came to value marriage and monogamy. We're going to get this and more on next week's episode. So please subscribe to this podcast everywhere that you listen. Every single place, like literally every platform. Every single place. We're talking Spotify. We're talking Apple Music. All the things. <laughs> subscribe. And leave a rating if you loved it. Right. Thanks for hanging out with us today. I am Kirsten Michelle Sills. And I am the Bull Bay. And we will see See y'all next week. Bye. Bye. So Curious is presented by the Franklin Institute and special thanks to the Franklin Institute producers, Joy Montefusco and Dr. Jayatri Das. This podcast is produced by Radio Kismet. Radio Kismet is Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. The managing producer is Emily Cherish. The producer is Liliana Green. The lead audio engineer and editor is Christian Cederland. The editors are Lauren DeLuca and Justin Berger. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. The science writer is Kira Vayette. And the graphic designer is Emma Sager. 